On the afternoon of Wednesday, September 28th, as I took a seat behind third base, a uniformed groundskeeper was treading the top of this wall, picking bat and practice home runs out of the screen, like a mushroom gatherer seen in wars worthy in perspective on the verge of a cliff. The day was overcast, chill, and uninspirational. The Boston team was the worst in 27 seasons, a jangling medley of incompetent youth and age incompetence. The Red Sox were finished in seventh place only because the Kansas City Athletics had locked them out of the cellar. They were scheduled to play the Baltimore Orioles, a much nimbler blend of man December, who had been dumped from pennant contention a week before by the insatiable Yankees. I, and 10,453 others, had shown up primarily because this was the Red Sox' last home game of the season, and therefore the last time in all eternity that their regular left fielder, known to the headlines as Ted, Kid, Splinter, Thumper, T.W., and, most coilingly, Mr. Wonderful, would play in Boston. What will we do without Ted, Hub fans ask? Ran the headline on a newspaper being read by a bulb-nosed cigar smoker a few rows away. Williams' retirement had been announced, doubted. He had been threatened in retirement for years, confirmed by Tom Yonke, the Red Sox owner, and at last widely accepted as a sad but probable truth. He was 42 and had redeemed his abysmal season of 1959 with a considering his advanced age, fine one. He had been given away his gloves and bats and had grudgingly consented to a sentimental ceremony today. This was not necessarily his last game. The Red Sox were scheduled to travel to New York and wind up a season with three games there. I arrived early. The Orioles were hitting fungos on the field. The day before, they had spitefully smothered the Red Sox 17-4. Neither their faces nor their drab gray visiting team uniforms seemed very gracious. I wondered who had invited them to the party. Between our heads and the lowering clouds, a frenzied organ was thundering through with an this perhaps accidental, you made me love you. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. The affair between Boston and Ted Williams has been no mere summer romance. It has been a marriage composed of spats, mutual disappointments, and, toward the end, a mellow and horde of shared memories. It falls into three stages, which may be termed youth, maturity, and age, or thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, or Jason, Achilles, and Nestor. First, there was the by now legendary epoch when the young bridegroom came out of the West and announced, all I want out of life is that when I walk down the street, folks will say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. The dowagers of local journalism attempted to give elementary deportment lessons to this child who spake as a god, and to their horror, were themselves rebuked. Thus began the long exchange of backbiting hat, flipping boon, and spitting that has distinguished Williams' public relations. The spitting incidents of 1957 and 1958 and the similar dockside courtesies that Williams has now and then extended to the grandstand should be judged against this background. The left field stands at Fenway for 20 years have had a large number of customers who have bought their way in primarily for the privilege of showering abuse on Williams. Greatness necessarily attracts debunkers, but in Williams' case, the hostility has been symptomatic and unappeasable. His basic offense against the fans has been to wish that they weren't there. Seeking a perfectionist vacuum, he has quixotically desired to sever the game from the ground of paid spectatorship and publicity that supports it. Hence his refusal to tip his cap to the crown or turn the other cheek to newsmen. It has been a costly theory. It has probably cost him, among other evidences of goodwill, two most valuable player awards, which are voted by reporters. But he has held to it from his rookie year on. While its critics, oral and literary, remained beyond the reach of his discipline, the opposing pitchers were accessible, and he spanked them to the tune of 406 in 1941. He slumped to 356 in 1942 and went off to war. Those are the words of John Updike, with a column, Hub Fans Bid Kitted Do, October 22nd, 1960, in New Yorker. I was reminded of that today when we woke up to the news that Tom Brady, another kid of ours, 
was going to have to be better due. And for many, this was a, a day that we saw coming, a day that we dreaded, a day we never wanted to see, and a day we now have to accept. Tom Brady, not forever a patriot. I'm Mark Schofield, and this is episode 88 of The Sco Show. back with you now on episode 88 of the Sco show and we got the cold open we got the sad music because it's a bittersweet day it, it truly is and this is going to be a mailbag show i'm going to get to some questions although frankly there's only really one question to answer right now but we start with the news we start where we started we start with the fact that for the first time many of us can remember perhaps for the first time most of us can remember Tom Brady's not going to be under center next year when games kick off. That feels strange. I've been asked to talk about Brady a lot over the past 24 hours. I've been asked to write about Brady a lot. And it's really sort of hard to put into words what Tom Brady sort of means to me. And I'm going to try to do that a little bit more here with you. Um, I wrote about it a lot over a touchdown wire. I assume I'll be writing about it more over Pat's pulpit and and talking about it more at some other places. But as I said in a little piece we put together over at Pat's pulpit, for the last like 20 years of my life, there have basically been two constants. You know, aside obviously from my parents and people like that there's been the woman that's now my wife and there's been Tom Brady and I know that sounds strange but remember that I'm somebody who has been in large part defined by the game of football it's a game that I grew up playing it's a game that opened doors to me that probably might or frankly shouldn't have been open to me whether they were opportunities in high school opportunities for college opportunities to go to law school where I met that other constant in my life it's a game that now has given me more in the sense of it's now a career for me. And, you know, my law school experience was one of, you know, it wasn't easy. Law school never is. And it was difficult in part because, you know, I'm now in Virginia for law school, whereas when I went to college, I was a state away in Connecticut as opposed to Massachusetts. Now I'm a little bit more on my own. I'm in a different part of the country. I'm not in New England anymore. And I'm also having to come to terms with the fact that I'm not a football player anymore. You know, and I tried to sort of patch that together with intramural football and things like that. But as anybody that's played the game will tell you, when the pads come off for that last time, it's like a part of you dies. And I know that might sound a little bit too much, a little bit over the top. 
but it's true. And it's something that never goes away. I mean, I go out into the street or into the backyard and play catch with my son and it, I'm still transported back. I'll find myself working on drops and carrying out play fakes and it's always there, but it never is in a sense. It's gone forever. And so in law school, you try to piece it together. You try to recapture that with flag football and new murals and things like that, but it's never the same. And then in my final year in law school, there's a kid who's basically my age. A scrappy sort of underdog type kid that, you know, had to fight to keep his job in college. And suddenly he's thrust into the starting lineup to replace a quarterback that I had grown to love in Drew Bledsoe. A quarterback that, believe it or not, I didn't want the Patriots to draft back when I was in high school. Because I was banning the table for Rick Meyer, which basically means that since day one, my quarterback takes have been bad. And it's astonishing that people even listen to me. But here's this kid. And since then, he's been there. You know, I was reminded today, thinking about Brady, of you know, my third year in law school, driving back and talking with my parents because the Patriots were playing the Colts. And it was that game that Brady threw three touchdowns and they won 38-17. And, you know, who? where's this kid coming from? I remember that Sunday night game against the Rams where it's like, okay, they didn't win this game, but they can play. This is a good team. You know, you remember the run to the playoffs. You remember the snow game against the Raiders. You remember Bledsoe coming back in. But there was something special about this kid. And to see somebody that was basically my peer, same age bracket, doing the things that when I was growing up, I would only dream of doing. It just blew my mind. And suddenly here, this team that I grew up watching, And this player that grew up idolizing the same guy I idolized in in Joe Montana is doing what we dreamed of as kids in the backyard. Two minutes left, Super Bowl on the line. Leading your team down the field. I mean, it's, it's every situation you dream of in the backyard as a kid with your friends. My brother and I used to have this game, we would call it two minute drill, and we'd basically go in the backyard and Try to do what Tom Brady did against the Rams. And I've found myself in the past couple of weeks doing that with my son. And sort of that's what Tom Brady means to me. You know, this, this the journey of the past 20 years of my life, he's been a constant there. You know, I wrote over a touchdown wire that it's amazing that when this run in New England began, I was a law student, a third-year law student looking to become a lawyer. And it the end I'm married I'm no longer a lawyer with two children Brady's ride in New England even gapped the bridge between my son growing up and wanting to emulate me where he'll root for the Patriots and root for Tom Brady and sit next to me on the couch and root for them in the Super Bowl against Atlanta to the point where now he wants to be the contrarian the guy that the kid that doesn't want to be like his dad that wants to be his own man and roots for the Eagles dresses like Carson Wentz now wears a Lamar Jackson shirt and trolls me with the question 
What was your favorite Tom Brady pick six? Was it the one he threw against the Titans or was it the one he threw against the Dolphins? I started with the Updike quote earlier. Not to sort of compare the way that things end with Ted Williams to the way things end with Brady because obviously the love affair between Brady and Boston runs deep. And we saw that in his social media post. But I started with the Updike quote because it was just another reminder that things do end. And like Tom Brady Sr. said, told us years ago, things often end badly. And I don't want it to end badly. It doesn't have to be that way. And I'm sure in the days and the weeks and the months ahead, stories will come out about the fractured relationship between Brady and Belichick and of Robert Kraft trying to intervene in the waiting hours and trying to save the player that he viewed as his son and trying to keep him back in Boston. And I'm sure that score points will be scored and battle lines will be drawn. And inevitably, as it often does, it ends badly, as Tom Brady Sr. advised us it would. But my sincere hope is that it doesn't. My sincere hope is that we realize that for 20 years we were treated to the greatest quarterback of all time. And for those of you that were young when this run began that maybe weren't born when this run began. This team, in many ways, was a laughingstock. It had had some runs. Super Bowl twenty, the Super Bowl against the Packers. But it wasn't this. It wasn't the franchise in sports. It was a franchise in sports. But now it's the franchise. Now it's the dynasty. Now it's the model. Now it's the mountaintop. And it's because of number 12. It doesn't have to end badly. And I know there will be those who are disappointed and there will be those that will say that Brady gave up on New England, that he didn't want to come back, that it was he that turned his back on us. But he owed us nothing. He gave us 20 years of greatness. He gave us 20 years of joy. He gave us 20 years of being the constant. And for me, well, he gave me everything he could. He allowed me to continue to love this game just as a fan. He allowed me to continue to love this sport that I thought I would never be able to love again. And in the twilight of his career in New England, he gave me a player to write about when I was embarking on a dangerous new journey an unsettling new voyage of my own. And in the end of his time in New England, he gave me that reminder that sometimes things do come to an end. That sometimes life isn't perfect. And that sometimes you have to say goodbye to a part of your life to experience a better part of your own again. It's going to sting next year when he's in the creamsicles or whatever uniforms they trot out in Tampa Bay, it's going to sting. It's going to feel awkward. We're going to hate it. We're going to hate it when Jared Stidham throws his first interception. We're going to hate it when the Patriots miss out on the playoffs next year or whenever they miss out on the playoffs. But Tom Brady is taking care of Tom Brady. And after 20, 20 years of taking care of us, he can go do that now too. Up next, your questions. We've got some of them in. We're going to talk a little bit about free agency and stuff. That's ahead 
on episode 88 of The Sco Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 88 of The Sco Show. And it's time to get to some of your questions now. I know we kind of ran a little bit long with the cold open and then that little soliloquy there. But we still got some questions. Obviously, people are sort of focused on Brady, coronavirus, minds are all over the place right now, but we did get some in, so I'm, I'm happy for that. First up via email, Greg Easterbrooks. With Philip Rivers signing with the Colts and Jacoby Brissett as the backup, it is likely that Brian Hoyer is cut. Do you think the chances are good, as I do, that Hoyer is signed by the Patriots? And, Russell, I, I think that's probably the road they're going to go down. I know a lot of people have sort of speculated right now that, you know, and I, we're, we're going to get into some more sort of Brady replacement talk in a second, but, you know, I know some have speculated maybe a, a Cam Newton or an Andy Dalton, but I really think that the plan here now is Jared Stidham. You know, Diana Rossini had said that, you know, the Patriots have a plan at the quarterback position, and I do think that it's Stidham. And I think that the Patriots are going to take this year to sort of realize what they have in him and then evaluate the quarterback position as they do at the end of the season, whenever that comes. I don't know, some people have sort of theorized that maybe they're going to roll with Stidham and sort of try to tank for, for Trevor Lawrence, but I don't see Bill Belichick going the tanking route. I don't think Bill Belichick is going to look at a, a football season and think, we need to lose games. I think he's going to approach things with the mindset that we're going to try to make the playoffs, we're going to go out there and win every game, and we're going to do it with Jared Stidham as our quarterback. Now, Brian Hoyer makes sense because you're going to now need a backup. And I think sort of a vent, uh, veteran mentor type backup like a Brian Hoyer makes sense given that cap room and things like that. And so, yeah, I, I think I think that Brian Hoyer makes a ton of sense for the New England Patriots right now. And I got to say, I've been writing all these free agent grade pieces and, and things like that. I, gotta, I need a new phrase. Can somebody give me a phrase that is better then makes a lot of sense. I feel like I'm saying that so much the past couple of days. And it's driving me crazy. Here's another question from Masaltoke. M- at M-A-S-A-L-T-O-Q-U-E. More than COVID and Tom living, the most scary thing for me is who we, who would the Pats bring to be our new quarterback? What about trading Gilmore to get Tua? What do you think? And, you know, I, I think... Oh, Tom Levin, not Tom Levin. I he he fixed that in a subsequent DM. I I think that in a vacuum, the idea of Tua Tungovailoa as New England's quarterback is a good one. You know, I think he would fit with what they were doing schematically, what they looked to do schematically. I think we are going to see whoever the quarterback is. I think you are going to see more of an RPO, modern-type feel to this offense next year. You know, I I think that they're going to incorporate some of this stuff because whether it's Stidham or somebody else, they're going to have that sort of background in them. And so, schematically, I think Tua makes sense. Conceptually, I think now we're looking at a situation where Bill Belichick is going to think that we need to win games 17-10. to Dave Archibald just sort of drop this into the Scotia Slack channel as I sat down to record and basically said something to the effect of, you know, I think Belichick's looking at things like, you know, they're looking at winning 17-10 slobber knocker type games now. You know, they're not going to score points. 
Belichick wanted to go back to 17-10 rock fights. They're going to have the defense as the focal point of the team. And so you're going to not you're not going to want to trade assets like a Stephon Gilmore. Now, of course, that causes the question the fact that Kyle Van Noy and Jamie Collins have just left town. But the Patriots, they were hamstrung. You know, and look, it's it it's it all looks bad right now. But the fact of the matter is they made the decision to bring back Joe Tooney, who's you're going to need to sort of solidify the offensive line and build a group that can protect the next quarterback. And so I understand that decision. They have linebackers behind Van Noy, behind Collins, and you can grab a guy, whether it's on the secondary sort of free agency market or whether it's a guy like a Patrick Queen. I th- I think we're looking at that kind of situation next year. They're going to win, like David Archibald said, they're going to try to win rock fights left and right. So I don't think that it's going to be a situation where they trade a Stephon Gilmore, a big asset on the defensive side of the ball, for Tua. I mean, I, I know we've talked this week about potentially trading Gilmore for picks. I, I just think that given this scenario right now, I'd be stunned if they moved Gilmore. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it's entirely possible that I'm wrong. Look, I'm an idiot just sitting here in front of a microphone with a fruit punch in front of him. But I just don't see it. Now to some of your questions from Twitter. Um, from my mom, at Carol Sko on Twitter. And yes, her Twitter game is better than a lot of yours. It is. It just is. It, it was better than mine for a long time, too. And then somehow some of you chucklehead started following me. I, I still don't know why. Will Edelman go with Brady? Can I just say that Edelman's like goodbye video with the song from the bodyguard, Whitney Houston, like broke my heart, like just crushed me, and I wasn't expecting it to, but it did. I, I don't think Edelman will go. We're hearing rumblings that if anybody goes to Tampa Bay, it's going to be, believe it or not, Antonio Brown. So I don't think Edelman goes. Um, could he become tradable? Maybe. The wide receiver room is deep enough, I think, as it is. They've got Chris Godwin, so I think there'd be some overlap there. Um, so I don't think he goes to Tampa Bay. Maybe he does become tradable. You know, maybe they do look to move him. He is at that point in his career where we saw slippage and injuries mount up for Wes Welker. So are they probably looking to prepare for a life after Julian Edelman? I think so. Um, but I don't know if that's going to come right away. From our good friend Isaac Gogle at XXISAACGOGELXX, are you going to cover the team Brady goes to? I'm here. The show goes on. I'm not going anywhere. All that good stuff. Look, Patriots fan, you know, I can't say Patriots fan for life because I did grow up idolizing Montana. But, you know, when you get older and you start to realize that you're not going to be Joe Montana, you sort of look around and start to like the team that you're growing up watching. So I'm not going anywhere. I mean, as somebody that is now getting to cover the NFL on a more broad spectrum, on a more global basis, I'll certainly be covering Tampa Bay in a sense. I'm ecstatic for my boy, John Ledyard, who is now getting a chance to cover the greatest of all time. I'm super happy for him. Super happy for guys like Travis Sycamore, you know, Tampa Bay fans, JC Cornell from the Draft Network, um, you know, Luke Easterlin, guys that have been Bucks fans for a while now. They get to cover Tom Brady, you know, and they're going to enjoy it. It's going to be a ton of, ton of fun for them, some great content for them. So I'm excited for those guys. Um, but no, I'm not going anywhere. 
Um, my good buddy Neil Dutton at ndutton13. How much cheese is too much in a standard soft shell taco? Well, Neil, the problem there is the soft shell part of that. See, when I do the homemade at-home taco bar, it's hard shell, queso, then your layer of meat, then your layer of cheese, then your lettuce, your tomato, your salsa, and then one last sprinkling of cheese. Because I guess to Neil's point, there is never too much cheese in a taco. Now, when you go soft taco, it does get a little tougher because you do have more spillage and more overfill situations, which can be tough. But when I roll hard shell, there's never too much cheese, especially when you drop that layer of queso in. And sometimes I get it a double layer of queso. Like, that's just how I roll. Bill Rossetti, at Bill underscore Rossetti on Twitter. How's your day going? Bill, how do you think it's going? Not great, Bob. Bill's a good friend, though. Really love Bill. You know, give him a follow on Twitter. He's doing great work at Panthers Wire. Now he gets to cover a new quarterback in Teddy Bridgewater. So he's got that going for him, which is nice. At Selbridge Gooner. At C-E-L-B-R-I-D-G-E-G-O-O-N-E-R. You're named Patriots GM. Parentheses. I'd second that close parentheses. With limited draft capital cap space at our disposal, what is our best case QB scenario? I, I think it's the one I outlined. It, it's Jared Stidham. It's Brian Hoyer. It's seeing what you got. And we might not like what we see, but I've been told from people in and around the building that they like Jared Stidham, that they love what he did last year in terms of development, and we're going to find out what we've got on a quarterback. Now, that being said, as I said earlier in the show, I'm just an idiot with a microphone in front of him that you guys are somehow listening to. And so by the time this show airs, heck, by the time this show is done recording, they might trade for Nick Foles or something crazy. But if it were me, it's Stidham it's Hoyer, and you see what you've got this time next year. Brian at VGMAN20. I can't think of anything, Mark. Both football and the real world have been so eventful over the last few weeks. Yeah, it's nothing going on. Quiet times. Smooth sails along calm seas. Jared Thorne at Planet Jared. Gunner's punt returning skills. Well, might have to find that one out too, especially if Edelman moves on. Building an offense around Gunner. Sign me up. And the last question, Ghost of Chester Copperpot at Brian B.E. 34590134. Do you think Belichick will retire? No. No, he's not going anywhere. Like, let's 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 face it. He's going to want to prove that he can win without Tom Brady. Just like Brady's going to want to prove that he can win without Bill Belichick. So I don't think Belichick is going anywhere. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun for everybody. We do have one more question that comes via the Twitter machine, via a DM from Hytham Winterbottom. Hytham Winterbottom. It was on Twitter at Hytham, H-A-I-T-H-A-M underscore Winters, W-I-N-T-E-R-S. I wanted to ask for the mailbag if you could talk about how you stayed motivated through your change of career. So far, I'm trying to be involved in football. I haven't found a place to stick just yet. Just wanted to know how you managed to juggle a change in a family. Thanks, as always, for the great content. And... First up, I want to strongly recommend a podcast that I did with Matt Waldman. We did an episode together, gosh, I want to say it was like maybe December, January, sometime in around there, where we talked about 
the grind. You know, people often, you know, lovingly refer to a, what we do as the grind, right? Grinding the tape, Kyle Krabs, his, his Twitter handle, for example. By the way, my group DMs are filled with non-Pats fans right now, and it's just if you think what you're seeing on the timeline in public is is rough well man man it's rough but i digress look what i do professionally now it's not work you know i get to watch football i get to talk about football i get to opine about football when there's sometimes no reason for me to do so you know and i get paid to do it and I get to do it from home. I get to, if I feel like it, put everything down and play with the kids or run them around to their after-school activities or go to the gym when it's not super crowded because I can. I'm extremely lucky to do what I do. And yes, it's nice in this weird, strange time that we're living in that everything is here. I, I can just continue to do what I do. You know, there are people that are in much tougher circumstances than I am that are wondering about the future of their job and wondering if they're going to get to go back to work or how they're going to pay bills. I'm incredibly, incredibly, incredibly lucky that I'm not in that boat. But it doesn't mean that it's all roses and sunshine. Like, it's tough at times. I'm in an incredible place now, but it wasn't always that way. You know, when I made the decision to do this, rather than practice law. It wasn't easy. And as I talk about on the podcast I did with Matt, you know, you get looks, you get questions, you get uncertainty from friends, from family, from close family, from loved ones. You know, is this viable? Is this going to pay you? How are you going to support your family? What are you going to do with your law degree? What are you going to do with the bills you have to pay? And I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that there were sleepless nights, that there sometimes are still sleepless nights, that there are sometimes still moments of doubt. And I'm lucky that for whatever reason, you know, whether it's my passion for the game, whether it's how I write about the game, how I talk about the game, a combination thereof, how I see the game, People seem to like to enjoy that and consume it and listen to it and read it. But I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I told you that there weren't people that I think do it better than me. You know, there are times when I'll log on to Twitter and I'll see a video from a Benjamin Solak or I'll read something from Matt Waldman or, you know, you name it. Like there are so many great men and women that are covering this sport right now where there are times when I just don't think I can compete. I walk into a place like the Combine and I'm looking, ar- looking around the room and like, you know, there's Noah Princiati and there's Phil Perry and, you know, there's Arif Hassan and there's everybody from the Draft Network. And it's just like, how do I hang with these people? They're so much better at what they do than I am at what I do. And there are times when it gets intimidating and scary and you start to doubt yourself. You start to b- really believe that you can't do it. And I have those moments all the time. And I have those moments now. And I'm having a moment like that right now where I'm wondering, do people even care about what I have to say? Like, it's just part of it. But you realize 
that if you have a passion for it and it shows in what you create, people will appreciate it. And whether my opinions on quarterbacks or players or games or whatever are right or wrong, I think that in the end it doesn't matter. I think what matters is people know that when they read something that I do, when they listen to a show that I do, when they watch a video that I've done, they know that I care about it. They know that I've put my heart and my soul into it. And in the end, my ultimate conclusion on a quarterback or on a team or on a player or on a trade or on a sign-in, that it doesn't matter. But what matters is that I put my heart and soul into it and that I've armed the reader, the listener, the viewer with the weapons that they can now make a decision of their own. Because if you read my stuff, if you, if you listen to my stuff, and if you're listening to the show and if you've sent in a question, it's clear that you do, you know that ultimately what I always say is decide for yourselves. You know, when I have a take about a quarterback, when I have a take about a tight end or a wide receiver or any of the countless things that in the end don't really matter at all, I always say that's my opinion. But I want you to have your own. Because that's sort of the beauty of, of this game is that what all this stuff that we say, that we do, that we create, that we record, that we write, it doesn't matter. Because I'm doing this stuff for the me of 2010, of 2011. The me that was a basket case that was stressed out, that was so anxious that every day was a struggle. And sometimes the only moments of solace and of joy that I had were reading an article about football or listening to a podcast about football. I mean, when I was, when we were living downtown and I could walk to work, you know, 8.50 to 8.59 was the best part of my morning. And, you know, 6 to 6.09 was the best part of my night in many senses, because it was just the walk and it was the radio show or the podcast. And it was just a chance to separate myself from either what was behind me or what was in front of me. And so all the stuff that I do, it's for that person, that man or that woman that's going to their job, that's at their job, that's coming home from their job. And they want a little something to get away from the day and to something maybe lets them think about football a little bit. And that's what I'm doing the show for. And so that's sort of what drives me still. Knowing that there are still people out there, and I hear from them a lot, that like that they can put this show on in the car before they're going to work or on their way home or at the gym, and they can just sort of forget everything else. You know, it's nice to have that, especially now. Especially now when we, in a way, are, are forced into solitude, are forced into isolation, and things are uncertain, and it is, in a way, scary. And yet, we'll get through all of this, and we hope and we pray and we care for our loved ones and those around us, and we hope that whether it's a week from now or two weeks from now or four weeks from now or whatever, things will get back to some semblance of normal, but these are weird times. But is there doubt along the way on my end? Of course. You know, is what I do ultimately stable? Do I have a lifetime contract to do this? Absolutely not. Could things change in a whim? Sure. 
but I think what's, what's driven me is just that feeling that the passion for what I do and the passion for this sport and the joy I still get from watching it and the joy I get from interacting with people, whether it's ridiculously silly gifts or jokes or articles in the Slack channel, wherever, comes through. And so that's been the driving force. You know, a lot of people, you know, performers, sinners, musicians, actors, actresses, they talk about how, you know, the beauty in what they do is knowing that people like it, that the, the people come away moved by it. And it seems silly to think, oh, you know, I'm just writing and talking about football, that that's going to move people. Maybe it's not going to move you. Maybe you're not going to be like empowered by it or blown away by it or changed by it. But it's going to help brighten your day for 20 minutes. You're going to feel like you learned something when you read something. And that's pretty cool too. So that will do it for today. I will be back Thursday with some kind of free agency type wrap-up show. It's been a long day. It's going to be a long off-season. But we're going to get through it together when the show goes on. Until next time, friends, please keep on blessing that Patriots reign. Down in Foxborough.